everybody welcome to another episode of the podcast this podcast is part of northern provisions llc check out the lethal minds journal a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture take a look at the journalist bulletin from the borderlands a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash analyze educate, or you could support us on Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com slash analyze educate as well. I'm joined by Northern Provisions again, and we have a guest on that is Landon Pinnell. Landon is an Air Force veteran who was present for the close down of Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan just before the Afghan government collapsed. And he was also present for the evacuation at Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan. We're at the two-year anniversary period of when all these events were going down. You know, the Afghan government collapsed on August 15th, and then at this point two years ago as well, that evacuation was ongoing. So all these events are are sort of clustered together around this time, 2021. That's why we wanted to bring Landon on and, and share his experiences with everything that happened. So I hope you guys can gain some value uh, in this episode and hopefully answer some of your questions and bring some things to light that um, could have been done better during the operation at HKIA. With that being said, I'm not going to take too much of your guys' time. We'll just head into the episode. Hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I'm here with Northern Provisions and I'm here with uh, Landon Bunnell. How's it going, boys? It's going good. Going good. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Landon, I guess we'll we'll just get started, man. Where'd you grow up, and how'd you end up joining the Air Force? Gotcha. So, I grew up in a small town in Alabama. It was called Asbury. If you Google it, it's probably not going to be on the map. Um, grew up there, went to high school, played all the sports. Um, I guess after high school, I, I started college to be a physical therapist, and doing that and working a full-time 12-hour shift job every day just wasn't working out. So, I figured the Air Force – was my best bet um so that's that's where i rolled into the military do you have any like family that were in the military or i was the first i think my my grandpa was like a guard or something like a reserve um but i was i think i was first active duty okay was your uh was your mos when you were in that's what you guys call it right i'm not familiar with their uh afsc yeah, AFSC. Um, basically, the same thing. My AFSC was a two T two. Um, basically, air transportation, just move cargo, move people, just put shit on planes, like C one thirties and all that stuff. Yeah, one thirties, C seventeen, C fives, seven fours, really anything, anything you can put put a water bottle on. So do you guys do you guys just like put the stuff on the planes, or do you like? You fly with the cargo too, like a crew chief ish. So, so in, the, in the Air Force, you got loadmasters. Um, they're kind of ones that fly with the, the cargo. We're just we're just on the port. Um, we load all the cargo, and after it's all loaded, we just go back back to loading the next plane that comes through. Yeah, that's that sounds exhausting. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. How long were you in uh, before you did this deployment to? so so i was in that career field for about two months before i, I deployed it was funny so my first wait that's half, it 
yeah, my first year and a half, I was um, I joined to be an EOD tech, and uh, like a lot of people, that road was cut short. So I went to um, tech school. I, I got I got cross trained into being a two T two. Um, I got to my station, and about a month after that, I got the notification that I was going to Afghanistan because my counter was above, I guess, my peers that were there. So yeah. Okay. And what, what did you think you were going to be doing in Afghanistan? Like what time frame is this? So this was about May, I say mid May, early May of 2021. I think we had already had a group of guys go to um, Kandahar and some other places out there to close down. So my original orders were for Kandahar. I think two days before shipping out, they got changed to Bagram and we were just kind of told like, Hey, there's a uh, there's a deadline to get these bases shut down, and so we're just gonna go take get all the people out of there, get all of our equipment out of there, and come back home. It's supposed to be like a little two week deployment. Did they tell you at all what was going on? Like by the time you got there, I mean, like the Taliban starts their offensive like April time frame, and they just basically yeah. immediately start sweeping over the country. So was there like any conversation about that, or was it just like? pretty chill like no we're just gonna knock this out in a couple weeks and like that's it no worries yeah there was there was no conversation about um anything it was kind of very um sugar-coated what we were doing um very few people that i was with knew what was going on i had some friends kind of send me some information on instagram i think the uh like a few other news channels on instagram like, like real news no bullshit and some of those guys kind of just sending me those kind of posts um keeping me updated so i started showing everybody and i was like yeah like, there's actually shit hitting the fan and that's kind of when people started um i guess understanding what we were there to do and so you get to bagram i mean they just tell you we're just packing everything up like it's normal and that's it did you, did you guys have any idea like that they didn't tell the afghans they were closing down the base like they were just shutting everything down and leaving yeah, so I remember the first thing we did, so once we got, once our plane landed, we got off, we had like a little bus pick us up and take us to, I guess, the head shed is what we'll call it, kind of where the leadership was. Um, They kind of split us up in groups, like who wants to stay out here once this is over and who doesn't. And then um, they just kind of told us all like, hey, we should be out of here within two or three weeks. If you want to go home, sign this paper, whoever come over here. If you want to stay out here and go somewhere else, go with it, go this way. So as far as like telling us kind of what was going on, nobody, we weren't really briefed on the actual situation. We didn't know that the Afghans didn't know. Uh, I mean, kind of just the cliche of it is nobody knew what was going on. So you said you guys kind of had like an option to stay or go somewhere else. Like they allowed you like stay in Bagram for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So they they kind of asked us um, once the once this Bagram mission is over, do you want to forward deploy somewhere to finish out your full six months, or do you want to go back home? Re so so going back home after that like month and a half or month that Bagram was going to take. Um, if you went back home, then you kind of risked the chance of getting deployed again because your counter wouldn't reset. And so that was kind of the option there for us. Okay. 
And while you were at Bodrum, I mean, did that end up taking like two weeks or whatever, like they said it would? Uh, we were there for probably a little over a month. I'd, I'd say we got there, I want to say mid-May. Um, I was there for my birthday, which was in June. I think it was kind of towards towards July that we, I think we were still there. So I think I got to Kuwait. Um, it's either late June or early July. And at this point, they're still not telling you what's going on. Because, I mean, like, as the months are going on, it's becoming pretty clear that, like, the Afghan government is going to have to put up a pretty good fight to, like, stave off the Taliban. And it's just not looking like it's happening at this point. Yeah, no. So for us, kind of, um, they were just kept telling us, like, hey, focus on the mission, focus on getting the people out. We worked with a lot of uh, Polish forces, um, Georgian, Romanians. Um, they, there was a lot of them there that we were kind of, we were just loading their whole, I mean, brigades of them, just would fill planes up with them, send all their cargo out. And our focus was just kind of on that. We still weren't really tracking the actual full picture. Did you have any interactions with like some Afghan forces while you're at Bagram or were you pretty separate? So personally, I didn't see any. Um, for me, it was either U.S. forces, uh, Polish, Romanian. That was, that's kind of the, really it. Okay. When you were there, what was, um, did you have the opportunity to kind of interact with any of the, you know, coalition nations and like, what was their overall, I guess, feeling at the time? Like, you know, did they feel good about the timeline? Did they feel good about what was going on? Like, what was their take on it? Yeah. So there was actually one guy I met and I actually talked to him probably for like a week straight. He was, um, so where our our shop kind of was, this there was a ECP, and there was a group of Polish forces that were manning that ECP. And so I talked to this one dude probably every day for a week straight, and um, we didn't really have really long in depth conversations because there's definitely a, a language barrier there. Um, but I think we we had like one or two drinks together because um, now that I'm out, I can say it, but I guess they were sneaking sneaking beers in. Because I know that was like a dry place, but um, yeah, we, we kind of hung out there, uh, did a pretty cool thing. I thought it was cool. We like swat patches. Next day, he asked me for a uniform, so I gave him one of my OCP uniforms, and he gave me like a desert Polish uniform. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, the the most interaction I got out of any of them. What kind of beer did they smuggle in? I have no idea. It wasn't. <laughs> I couldn't read the can. Was it Tastes good? like shit. No, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you guys just ended up leaving Bagram. I mean, were were you one of the last ones to leave, or? As far as I'm, uh, so kind of what we were told. So once we got all the Polish, all the Romanians, Georgians, um, once we got all those guys out of there, um, it was us. And I want to say. The Rangers, there's like a Ranger regiment there. And let's see, I want to say we were one of the last flights out because our job was to get everything else out before we left. So um, I'm not really sure exactly who was the last ones out, but once we got everybody and everything out, we, we flew out. Okay. And then you end up going straight to Kuwait from there? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely weird. Um, they split us all up into groups. Like we had friends go to Jordan – um friends go to Qatar, Saudi. Um a couple of my buddies went to Dubai. 
And then I was the only one that went to Kuwait with a whole new new group of guys. Um, but yeah, that's when I got there. Okay. What was that departure like from uh, Bagram? Did you guys know that you were essentially closing down the base? Uh, yeah, so we, we knew that we were closing the base down. Um, as far as departure-wise, it was just kind of me on a C-17. I think it was me, one Army Sergeant Major, and just a plane full, like like head-to-toe full of munitions. Okay. I'm sure that was like a, a weird thing to experience at the time, knowing you're closing down the base. Yeah, it was, it was definitely weird. Um, took lots of pictures. Try, try to soak it all in but it was definitely weird like um i actually had let's see i'm trying to think if it was it's another family family member of mine who was in the reserve they were there at one point and so while i was there they were sending me pictures of them while they were there and it was just like it was interesting seeing how like how the place still looked the same as 30 40 50 years ago so did you guys um like as you're as you're leaving, was there any indication that you had or that you know your command or some command on the base had actually explained this um to like their A and A counterparts or did the A and A seem like they knew it all? Um as far as A and A, I have no idea. Like I I didn't really interact with any of them or, or see any of them. And then as far as like your higher ups go like nobody really said anything like we're just leaving the space oh yeah yeah without, I'm sorry without telling yeah. anybody that was basically yeah it was like yeah we're just getting out going back home that's what what the word on the street was we had no idea that 10 hours after we left the taliban were walking through our barracks that's, that's Damn, really crazy. yeah oh yeah, wow it was like once we got out of there, I remember looking on Instagram and there's already pictures like the videos that the Taliban actually was like live streaming and stuff like that of them actually walking around um, at Bagram Airfield. And they were like where I worked at, where we slept at. They were just, yeah, they were all there. See, that's crazy because I did not realize that the Taliban got, I mean, that basically that deep into the heart of Afghanistan, like that quick. Yeah, it was I mean, it's, as soon as. I don't want to say as soon as the wheels, um, I guess as soon as the plane took off, but I'll say the next day or so after that, it was very quick that they were already at Bagram getting all the equipment. Interesting. Is it possible that those that, that footage was from another base? Because um, like, I, I was under the understanding that Bagram didn't fall until like roughly mid, mid-August, like right before Kabul. Um. I'm not sure. Um, I was pretty sure that it was Bagram. I know there was people saying, like, my people that I was there with sending me videos of it, like, tagging me and it, sending it to me on Instagram, so like that, saying, like, we were just there a couple of days ago. But I could also just be wrong because, I mean, the whole the whole thing was sort of a blur. Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> and then from, from there, how long was it until you started helping out in Kabul? So I was in Kuwait. Um late June, early July, and I was there up until, I believe, the day after. Like, all the videos you see of the the airfield being stormed, people falling from planes and all that shit, I think the day after that, or maybe one or two days after that is when we got there. Okay, so you got, yeah, you got there kind of after the government had already fallen and, and 
really like when the chaos starts. Yeah, we got there once. Yeah, it was still chaotic um, when we got there, but it was definitely not what I saw on the news the day before. So um, when we got there, the airfield was, you know, just airplanes, just U.S. forces. It was sort of, I'd say, under control. Yeah, I mean, going going back to Kuwait real quick, I mean, what did they tell you you were going to be doing there? So Kuwait, they once I got there, nobody even knew I was there. I was thinking I was there for three or four days before um, – I got any kind of text or call from leadership. Um, once I got notified of what I was actually going to do there, um, that was like, Hey, you're doing the same job here. Every, but everything that we were, we sent from Bagram or from Kandahar or from any other base that were shut down basically went through Kuwait. So everything that I saw that I had already tagged, labeled, inspected, I'm doing it all again here to send it somewhere else. So during this time, I mean, is, is your command saying anything to you about what's going on in Afghanistan? Because, again, like the more time that goes by, like it's becoming more and more obvious that like the country is collapsing. Yeah. So uh, from a personal standpoint, I kind of and off of like people that I was there with following, following the news, following all the pages that like um, kind of daily, hourly updates on the on the. I guess, movement of the Taliban. That's kind of the only place I got information from. Leadership, other, I guess, other chains of command there weren't really briefing anybody. Yeah, I kind of, I've, I've listened to a few interviews with guys that, you know, were at HKIA during the operation, and it kind of sounds like that's a common theme. Like, maybe if you were in a specialized position, like a, like a scout sniper, or you were with some, like, you know, special missions unit or something like that, you probably got a little bit of briefing, but most other guys weren't really told what was going on by their command and really had to find everything out from like Instagram news pages. Yeah, it was definitely very uncoordinated. So, I mean, at this time, there's probably like no indication that you're going back to Afghanistan. Yeah, no. So I remember, um, I remember we had a new wave of guys come in, um, Still, still in Kuwait. New wave of guys came in. I got home. I guess we got back to my shed, and then I want to say it's like ten, eleven p.m. something like that when I got there. And by the time I wake up the next day, I already had a text message from a master sergeant who was like, "Hey, you're going back to to uh, Kabul, or going back to Afghanistan." Like we asked some other guys that are going with you here in the office. Um, so it was it's kind of like a family reunion. Everybody that I was in Bagram with that kind of went to Jordan, Dubai, Qatar, everywhere else. They flew into Kuwait, and we were going to take one flight out of Kuwait together on A-17. Um, so we all we all met there at the hangar and then flew out on a 17 together and went to, went to um, yep, back to Afghanistan. How many of you guys were there, do you think? I would say roughly 20. I'd say somewhere in the 20s. Okay. Do you know if that was, I mean, basically like the whole contingent that was going to be loading and offloading yeah. planes or that's yeah. it? That was basically it. Um, that was with us. I know a lot, a lot of people, I think it was so short because a lot of people did choose to go home. They didn't want to stay out there to fulfill their full deployment. Um, so once we got there, I think there was maybe 15 to 20 guys on my flight. Um, six or seven of them missed it maybe maybe a handful more so the next day they flew in on a different plane um 
I think total there, it was probably, I'd say, I'd say somewhere in the twenties. Yeah. I mean, obviously I never did that job, so I can't say, but that, that does not sound like a lot of guys for that. Mission. It's, it's not, especially um, like, like the Marines would take us. It, it was super random, you know, like, like error. The things that these people were trained to do, I guess that we are trained to do is just load cargo, offload cargo. And then we were sitting there getting pulled by the Marines to do crowd control, things like that. I think my first three days there, I didn't even touch cargo. I was just, just trying to control some of the refugees. How, how much notice did you get from like when you got that text message? to when like you actually got on the flight to Kabul? It was the same day, I believe same day notice. Um, so the day we got the text, I believe it was like really late that night or it may be an early that, that next morning. So basically the same day notification, we had enough time to um, go grab our gear, um, get our bags ready and yeah, go, go to the port. Good, man. I mean, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I mean, still did like, you not really get like briefed on anything that was going on over there so because i mean so, at this point dude it's like mm -hmm. for, if what you're saying is true it sounds like you got there probably august 15th 16th the government collapses on the 15th mm -hmm. and i mean the taliban's basically at the gates of h kai the situation's like very uh tense to say the least i mean like you're kind of going into some shit yeah you know? so it's yeah, definitely not like it like bagram was a few months back yeah, it was definitely um, like I said, it was definitely an uncoordinated movement. I would say because I, I know the the morning we got text or got got the text message, uh, went to work. That's probably um, eight or so guys in there, not counting like our commander, first sergeant, some others, uh, senior master sergeants or senior COs. Um, they were all just kind of in there, you know, like like pale faces. And then one of them finally finally stood up and said, like, "Hey guys, you're going back to Afghanistan." Um. The embassy's closing down, and that was kind of that was the brief. He was like, "You leave in the morning," so. And you were basically just told, like, "You'll you'll just be doing your job, like loading and offloading yeah. planes," and that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's that's especially the sum of it. He was like, "Yeah, same thing as Bagram. Get everybody out, get all the stuff out, come back home." Jesus, man. Um, when you guys were on the flight in. Did you take any small arms fired? You know, um, I don't think we did. I, I know, I want to say leaving Bagram. Is it is it the night we left Bagram, or I, I know we got I think four rocket shot at at Bagram the whole time. But I don't think I ever seen a rocket shot at in Kabul. Um, or well, that's not small fire. Small fire. I'm not sure. Um. I'm not sure about going out but or going in, but I'm pretty sure going out we received some. Okay. Yeah, the only reason I ask is because I know there is some flights that, that took some coming in and going out as well, and that kind of got swept under the rug, you know, with as well as a lot of details of this operation. Yeah, I'm pretty sure going in, we we went in pretty clean. I mean, if that was under control, like even, even outside the gate. So, like, the whole time we were there um working i mean it was never a quiet dual moment there was always a, some type of gunfire going off but i would say going in and landing we probably had 10 15 minutes of silence um so i think we went in at a pretty good time yeah okay. it checks out with everything i've heard from everyone else i mean you're like the third just from different branches too um you know marines army air force uh pretty much everyone 
I said at some point, like during the last couple of days that they received at least like three to four different rockets. Um, okay. Don't remember if any have actually hit. I think some of them mm -hmm. said some were shot down by the C-RAM, but. C-RAMs where they just went over, they just fucking missed. So. Yeah. The, yeah. Cause the C-RAMs may have been destroyed at that point, but um, yeah, that, that checks out. I mean, and that's definitely one of those things where you don't really hear a lot about that. Um, mm -hmm. There's, there's like those dirty details that, that aren't really often talked about. So. That was one of the big oh shit moments for me personally was um, we drove, I think. So we loaded up all the C-Rams from Bagram. Um, we were still there. So that's kind of the point. Like, dude, we don't have fucking C-Rams. We're just going to have to dodge rockets if they come in. Um, that's kind of like the where my ass started getting tight. <laughs> so, I mean, what's what's going through your mind at this point? Like, let's say when you're on the flight back to Kabul, or to Kabul and like right before you land like what's going through your mind because like you were in the Air Force for like a couple of months before you go mm -hmm. on this deployment right so it, it's a hell of a first deployment for sure yeah. especially especially with your job you know I'm sure you were not expecting this at all yeah um so basically kind of seeing what was already on the media with the situation there um it's, it's hard to explain the emotion or the thoughts. You're just kind of, it's just one of those things I'm sure you can relate to. You're just, you're there to do it. And like, um, I don't know. I tried to, I tried to block it out for the most part. I try to just, just, I guess, stay focused on why I'm there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So when you guys touch down in Kabul, I mean, you get off, go down the ramp, whatever you get off the plane. I mean, what, what does it look like? What are some of the things you're seeing? Got you. So we get off the plane, uh, walk down the ramp, and so I think our ramp was facing towards. There's like a little mountain out there that has like a. I would say the fucking couple Hollywood sign on the side of the mountain. Um, walk out. That's the first thing I see. I turn around and see the actual um, where everybody's at. Um, the, the lay of the land, and there's just like six or seven. I would say hundred yard lines of just refugees that are getting walked to different planes, um, escorted by Marines. Um, that's kind of what it looked like. Yeah. Just a bunch of mountains and then turn around and lines of refugees getting ready to board. Okay. And at this point, the, the flight line itself is probably secure, right? Cause this is after, yeah, you know, hundreds yeah, of people had already rushed it. Yeah. We were, we were basically the only ones on the flight line, uh, us forces. And then they had, um, they had sections and hangars where they kept refugees. I would say there's like, um, like a group, B group, C group and so on. And let's say a group will get on the very next plane. So they would get a group, put them in a single file line, load them up on a plane. So that's kind of what it looked like. Okay. And what what's the first thing you're doing once you get off the plane? Where are you going? Uh, first thing we do is kind of go to where our, our I guess, our leadership was. Um, we didn't know, know these guys. They didn't work with us. Um I don't even know if they're the same career field. We were just told that these guys are going to be coordinating their movement. And so we get to this hangar that has like a little fence in wall, I guess. It's like a little chain link fence. On the other side of this fence is another hangar full of refugees. We get there, hang out. Um, we're told that we're going to be sleeping there on the concrete. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of everything else. As far as MREs, all that stuff. It was just it was like here's the MREs, here's the water. 
Um, there's a few cots here. Uh, take take that because I think we got there pretty late in the afternoon. Cause so I just take the rest of the day to kind of like get yourself ready for for what you're going to be doing tomorrow, and that's kind of what happened that day. Okay, and when did you end up getting pulled for security? So that was the so the very next day, the second day there. Um, there's probably four or five of me and some friends that I've that I was would spend the whole deployment with. They were kind of from the home base as well. Uh, we were we we're kind of told just hey walk around, um, just make sure everybody's kind of in line in order, and then that's when a few Marines were like hey we're gonna go take a lunch break stay here with these guys, introduce us to a couple more Marines. And they just kind of told us like, Hey, this is what we're looking for. This is what we're trying to do. And basically there's like refugees that would try to cut lines or try to steal food from other refugees. Um, so we we're just kind of there to make sure that didn't happen. How, how often did you end up interacting with Afghan civilians? Like at, at this point? It was it was every day. I pulled out, which I was told I was warned by one of the Marines. If you have cigarettes, don't don't pull them out here. I didn't listen. I turned around, pulled out a cigarette, and there was ten of them that came up and asked me for for a cigarette. Um, I had little kids asking for them, uh, but it was it was a daily daily interaction with those guys because we were either feeding them, they would be um, we'd be giving them MREs, giving them water, stuff like that. So we we I guess our Job was to make sure that they're okay, that they're hydrated, that they're not going to sit there and just die, die on us. So, from what I understand, you could tell me if this is true or not, but a lot of the military age males who were single, you know, no wife or kids, uh, mm -hmm. were not easy to deal with, to say the least. No, not at all. Um, we definitely had a bunch of scuffles. Um, we had a few guys that would try. So actually, one of my buddies, he definitely learned a life lesson. Um, this day, I'd say it was the third or fourth day. We were with a um, we were with a, a butter bar and a couple other Marines, and my buddy had like a little, just a little Tanto knife, like on the back of his his belt. And after getting pushed and shoved by a group of middle aged male or military aged male men, um, that knife came up missing. And so, so yeah, we were kind of definitely on the lookout for that. Um, but that was, it was, it was always like a push and shove, you know, they're going to, they'll, they'll scratch you. They try to just, they tried to, for me, it was like, they're trying to distract me from something. That's what I would sit there and think. Um, but yeah, it was, it was constant. Those, those guys would, would not let up. Yeah. And how, how'd you guys end up dealing with that when someone was causing an issue? Uh, so for the most part, we would, so we, we didn't really use any, um, I guess our use of force was very limited, uh, for us off, we're in the air force. There's not really much that, um, that we thought we, we would, we were ready to do. So we would just, you know, we'd push the shove back and try to try to defuse the situation. Um, some of the Marine guys would also hold them, calm them down, de definitely deescalate the situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dealing dealing with uh, you know contentious situations like that and trying to uh, defuse them, I guess you could say that's that's definitely not easy. You yeah. know, me and uh, me and Northern were both Marine Infantry, you know, so and we got trained on that a lot. But it's like it's it's not something that's easy to deal with. 
No, because you definitely uh, gotta keep you know. it professional. Um, I, I guess the hardest part was uh, the kids. The kids there, they're sitting there watching. So you know, I'd have a kids here tugging on my pants, asking me for water or for some candy, while I got a, a middle-aged male spitting in my face. So it was definitely just one of those things. You gotta like kind of keep your bearing, um, try to keep everything smooth sailing. How often would they, would the Afghan refugees like fight each other? Or- you know, try to steal each other's food or water. Um, so as far as taking other people's things, I, I saw it all the time. Actually, um, there was a few plate carriers stolen off of people that I was around. Around, um, they they would ground their stuff and come back and be like, "Oh, my plate carrier's gone." Um, which I I think is fucking nuts. But but as far as the food, it was everyday constant um, fighting. Didn't really see much Afghans fighting each other. It was more so like whenever one line was ready to board a plane, it'd be guys try to like cut cut in line because they're only there's like a set number of people getting on that plane, so they'd try to cut in the line, and then the people that they cut in front of would sit there and yell or pull them out of the line or something like that. Yeah. So how how often would you say you saw like military age male Afghans? Um, like cut in front of like women and children every day, all the time. Yeah. Yep. Do you have any idea like how often those guys got sent back, like outside the gate, or were they let through a lot? Um. So it's really hard to tell. I wasn't really at the, I guess, at the gates much. It's more so the the refugees that were already in the gates that were, um, for the most part, have already been verified, good to go. Um, that's kind of the main, main crop that we got to deal with. Once they're there, they're, they're probably not getting sent back. Yeah. Yeah. Even once if they're, they're, once they're there. Like dicks. Yeah. So if they were acting like dicks, then there, there was, I, I, I never seen them, I guess, get, get booted from the lines or anything like that. There's definitely threats. Like I've seen Marines say like, yeah, like if, if you do this again, um, you know, they, they say like, uh, we'll send you back out of the gate, stuff like that. Um, basically, but that's basically just, they're just causing like a lot of trouble. And so, I mean, in your job, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure you probably don't get trained with or trained, you know, on like de-escalating situations and stuff like that. Did the Marines you were with, did they kind of help you guys out a little bit? And Yeah, they, they definitely gave us tips. So like whenever we first got grabbed by a couple of guys, they were like, this is kind of what's going on. This is, um, I'll be on the lookout for this. Uh, you know, they kind of tell us how to de-escalate things. Um, if they do need help, they they introduce it to other Marines kind of in the area and to just call for them if we need them. And so definitely um, it was me and one of my buddies I was with definitely were getting pushed, pulled, and it was like um, it was like a circle, just a circle of men around us. And then a couple of Marines saw it, came there, kind of cleared it out, and it was just back to normal. you remember what unit you were working with, what Marine unit? I, I do not. I couldn't tell you. Um, I know. So one of the ones that I I spent a few days with when I first got there was um, uh, rest her soul was um, Rosario Picardo. I know I spent time with her. Um, my first couple of days there. Yeah, I'm not sure if if it was all the same unit. I think she was. I think she was attached to one at the time. Gotcha. Yeah, do you do you remember like what kind of camis they were wearing? Uh so 
for the most part, it was like the light desert, light desert colored. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, it would have been two one. Two one. Now, you know, dur- during this time, like you're you're pretty much seeing the fall of Afghanistan. Well, you have witnessed the fall of Afghanistan. Um, was that kind of like at any point did that kind of register deep in your mind of oh, I'm I'm gonna be here for America's closing days in Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah, it was actually it was one of those things. Um, it's like it's it's, it's a hard feeling, I guess to put into words or hard thought to put into words. Um, but definitely being there, experiencing it, experiencing, experiencing the last days of it um, is definitely great in a sense, getting to do something that was so major. Um, but at the same time, like looking back now, it's like there's so much shit that could have been, that could have went better, um, which you got to control the controllables. So, but yeah, I do, I do have a lot of, I think that was a great thing. Yeah. And looking back is it's still pretty humbling that I was there experiencing it. Were there any uh, you know, you're seeing a lot, you're seeing kind of interact with a lot of Afghans on a day-to-day basis. Were there any uh Afghan casualties you saw, like anyone that had been injured or anybody that had um, you know, succumbed or, or was dealing having like medical episodes of any any type? Um I would say dehydrates. People would would pass out here and there. Um, we'd just try to give them some water. There's people that would, um, I say, panic attacks. It's just you you see them just going crazy sometimes and just hit the ground. Um, trying to think, trying to think of everything. Uh, as far as injuries, I wouldn't say any major injuries. You know, like some scratches and bruises. Uh, you'll see some blood maybe on their clothes from from whatever, but. I do know that they were sitting out there, like where they were stored. I, I don't want to say stored, but where, I guess where the refugees were put to wait for their flights. Um, they were there for you know two, three, four days sometimes, and so you just see them. I guess they get tired of sitting in this hangar or sitting outside in the sun for thirty something hours, forty hours, and so you just start seeing them kind of pass out. Yeah, I mean they're they're probably low on food during this time too, right? Yeah, most definitely. Like we try to feed, feed them MREs. Um, there was very few things out of the MREs that they they would eat, uh, cookies, candy. That's basically, basically all they would ever take from us. Damn. Yeah. Was was their biggest concern? I guess is like whatever ingredients were in the MREs. Yeah. Yeah. Every every time you give them MREs, we had to pull out like pork and stuff like that. Were you given any guidance on? you know, what to do if somebody was having, like, a, a medical episode? Like, I mean, something other than just, like, being dehydrated? Uh, none. No, not really. Nobody told us anything about that. Or, yeah, yeah, we, we had no guidance on that. And so, at this point, you're pretty much just, like, once refugees are, like, brought through the gate, they'll kind of, like, bring them to your area just to wait before they board the plane. Is that kind of what it was like? Yep, yep, for the most part. How many uh, refugees do you think you dealt with, like, at, at one point? I would definitely say thousands. Um, there was, there's so many lines, so many hangers. I, will, I, think, I think four hangers full of them, at least. Um, and then just, just lines and lines and lines of them outside. 
How many of you do you think were, were there keeping watch over these people? How many, how many of us were there watching them? Yeah. Uh, I, I say double, um, 10, 15 of us watching for the most part. Damn, yeah, just not a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely outnumbered, you know. Uh, I'd say def- outnumbered at least 100 to 1. Um, but it was – I guess in that situation, there's not really much you can do. You know, you're limited on Manning, and then you got just the the never-ending line, the never-ending rush of refugees trying to make it um, just to a you know a safe haven. So, so are, yeah. are you and your guys armed at this point? Yeah, so we we were armed the whole time. We were we were armed in Bagram, um, kept all the gear. When we went to Kuwait, um, stayed armed in Kabul. We were armed the whole time. Were you given any guidance as to what a situation would need to be like in order for you to have to use your weapon? None. Zero. It's kind of an issue. Yeah, Yeah. it's like a big fucking issue. Yeah, fucking. It's a very big issue. One thing is like, um, I mean, you have guys, the career field that that, that I was with that that we're in is like, um, you know, you don't really deal with the firearms you're dealing with cargo like yeah it's very very rare case you're gonna go somewhere and you need a firearm so yeah and that's and that's why i ask you right because it's like obviously you're not used to carrying around a loaded rifle with you like yeah um it was it's definitely a such show like i know in bagram I, I could sit there and count the many times that people would, would be would be walking to the chow hall somebody would just drop their info on the ground or <laughs> Or have it have it sling to where it's pointing right up at their chin, or at the at the back of the the next person's head. It's like oh, th- these people are so untrained with firearms, and now now they're putting what was probably a bit the biggest. It's, I would say not. I mean, it says non-combatant, but like you know, you're sitting there with a bunch of it's a bunch of people that want to start shit with you, and you know the situation is in a very very heated situation. And you don't know what to do with your rifle, so yeah, definitely a big issue. Yeah, yeah. were there any any times like where you're just sitting there and you're like, man, I don't know, like these dudes may try to overrun us or yeah, anything yeah, like that. Or you just every felt, day, every day. Yeah, there was a certain point where um, we actually had to give up our hangar because there's so many refugees coming through that we went down to where the 82nd was was kind of chilling out at. And we just had a bunch of T walls that were, I guess, in a like a V shaped pattern. And in that corner of the T wall, we had, we just had a few things. Like we had a fire out there, some other stuff. We kind of just started hanging out right there on the airfield. Did you interact with the eighty second a lot? Yeah, yeah, all the time. There was um, was always going around getting into some mis- 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 mischievous stuff. <laughs> so would follow them around and show us the way. Yeah, what what were those guys up to at this time? Um, for the most part, they had a bunch of um, just a b- bunch of equipment. They had a bunch of uh, like Matt V's, um, Humvees, things like that, howitzers. That we were just kind of our job to the, or for them was they had they had some little birds that we would load up. They had some um, black hawks that we would we'd put on planes for them. Um, a bunch and bunch of containers. And we would kind of just J.I. Um, inspect, inspect their vehicles, 
inspect all their cargo, put it on planes for them, and get as much can as we out, or get as much out as we could. But um, their job was kind of sit there and help us out. At this time, did you have uh, any uh, interactions with like people from other partner nations? So like our, Brits or anything like that. Yeah. So so we ended up um, for, further down the road. We ended up like like at nighttime, or I guess if it, if you were off shift, there was this little um, these little barracks that we finally got some access to, which is where the Brits stayed at. Um, very very nice people. Uh, they were great to to kind of hang around with us. We talked to them a lot, um, kind of shared barracks with them. Um, that's probably the most interaction at HKIA with a partner nation. Are there any, are there any like specific memories that really stick out to you from your time there? Um, shit. I know there was, um, there was a gunfight going on one night. And you can just sit there and see the see, see ricochets, um, to see like like bullets, flares, just whatever, just bounce up in the air. I have a video on my phone actually. You can sit there and just listen to the gunshots, and you just start seeing like tracer rounds popping off in the air. Um, that's and probably the, one of the, what was that? Oh, I'm sorry. And this is a fight that's going on like within the gates, right? Like. No, it's this, this is like, like there's like a little gas station. Um, there's, there's like Hotel Kabul. There's like a little gas station with a red roof. Um, apparently, that's where a bunch of executions were going on at. Um, so somewhere, somewhere in that area. And it was this kind of, I want to say that was kind of the main, the main battleground for that most part it was, if you ever heard gunshots, it's basically from that area. It was, I mean, you can hear it full auto, whether it's PKM, AK, um, just whatever you can, you, it's just ringing. Okay. But it were was you, outside you, the gate. Were you present at HKI for uh, any of the instances of like dudes opening fire like within the airport? Um. So there was definitely one lockdown that we had where kind of we, we were out there doing crowd control. We were all told to get inside this hangar. Uh, put our helmets on, make sure everything, make sure we're all geared up because there was, I guess, word of insider threats, stuff like that on the base, people um, rushing the base with firearms. Um, very low on intel, so I had no idea. Like We were never really briefed on what was going on at the time. Week down the road, we kind of never got briefed on what happened at the time, so, so I have no idea. Yeah, it's like I know I know there was at least at least two instances of quote unquote refugees being within the airport, wherever they were on the flight line, I don't know wherever, but they would just like pull guns out of their man dresses and start opening fire on people. Yeah. Yeah. And so I that's that's why I ask. And that's why like I think it's important to bring up the fact that like nobody told you like, hey, uh like this is what a situation needs to look like for you to like use your service weapon. Right. Yeah. The fact yeah. that you were not briefed on that at all, like that's, that's a big issue. Yeah. So for us, for the most part, we were never told anything about firearms. It's basically there for a prop. Um, I mean, we definitely, we had like 200 and what, 10, I think rounds of ammo um, in the farm itself. But yeah, we were never told when to use it when if if we needed to um 
stuff like that. And there was a few instances where we would, so we would drive down the flight line. So like we had the slow, we had a, a Mitsubishi. We probably drove maybe a half mile, quarter mile down the flight line. And the only people that you would ever see there are either the Air Force port guys or the 82nd Airborne. Well, we saw like three or four guys in in man dresses, like running, running close to like the perimeter gate, perimeter gate. And we just kind of, you know, they were, I would say arm reach distance, but never knew anything of it. Like never came up, like we kind of reported it to people. And it was like, yeah, um, we were kind of told that the Taliban were bringing refugees to the gate. They were sneak, they were putting get like giving them to us basically, and then just going back to pick up more. That was kind of what we were told for that. During this time, are you? interacting at all with you know whichever air force command you fell under i know you said like you didn't know any of these guys when you got to Kabul, right but did yeah. you uh, did they interact with you guys at all during this time or were you pretty much just like on your own program zero it was it was on our own program there was probably i know for me i think there was maybe 20 ish total of the cargo guys there of the two t2s um, I think day shift was 10 or so, night shift was 10 or so. So it's kind of just um, like the small group of us day shift guys. We just kind of did our own thing. We didn't really have anybody above us doing like like um, body checks. We never had any, any calls. Like no accountability like at all. Yeah, yeah, no accountability whatsoever. Which is insane because it, it sounds like if those Marines wouldn't have pulled you guys to help them out with security, I mean – yeah, definitely Basically would have, have done fuck all south. right, and your command would have had like they wouldn't have had any idea. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. When when I say shit show, I mean like in the most way possible. Nothing about that whole operation was fucking right. Yeah. So, what was like your communication like with your chain of command during this time? Like, who is the highest ranking person above you that you actually like were able to maintain comms with? So. Um, we had a tech sergeant who Air Force is a E6. Um, he kind of hung out at the head shed where all the other leadership was for the most part. Um, if he did need to get a hold of us, you know, we didn't have any radios. We had nothing like that. He would just drive down there to where we possibly were and in hopes that we were there just to kind of give us some news. It's so funny, dude. I think you saying that, I mean, basically, that just describes basically how this whole fucking operation went. Yeah, yeah, there was no leadership involved whatsoever, no planning. If he needs to get a hold of us, he'll just drive to where we might be and like fucking hope for the best. Yeah, yeah, because like, when, when I say we would get pulled from the 82nd to go do 82nd work, we'd get pulled from the Marines to go do crowd control. Um, there was countless times where I'd, I'd be looking for someone and – Nobody knows where they're at. So, and yeah, even leadership, like, yeah, I don't know. I thought he was with you. And so it was just, it was bad. That's awful, man. God damn. Do you have Did any this... interaction? Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're good. Did this kind of play a factor in, you know, your decision to get out? 
Um, definitely played a big factor. Um, but so it, it kind of played a factor in me wanting to change career fields. So like I said, my first year and a half ish was in the EOD pipeline and I was trying to uh, roll back into that. Uh, so my plan was to come back home, spend my package to go back to, to that career field, um, for training. But once I got back and did like my little health eval with my PCM, there was, um, I had no idea of this, but there was, I had broken vertebrae in my neck, broken vertebrae in my back, tons of nerve damage, a tear in my back, all this other stuff. And I thought it was kind of just normal back pain from, from being deployed. Um, so I got medically separated. You would have, you would have stayed in if you would have been able to keep up with the EOD pipeline and all that. Yeah, that was, that was kind of my only thing. Um, cause I was nearing the end of my, my contract anyway. So I was hoping I can go there, extend my contract and become a tech. But, but yeah, I got kind of got denied that because I was unfit to, to transition. I'm basically unfit for service to do what I was already doing. So during your time in Kabul, did you, did you see guys from the State Department or any other government agencies at all, whether through like interactions or just kind of like observing them? Uh, no, not not that I really know of. I didn't really see anybody that kind of popped out or stood out. Is either they were either in a like a Marpat or OCP. Okay, and what about um with the uh, Afghan forces? So, so I, I would say the only so Afghan forces I didn't really meet any or interact with much. Um there was one guy who actually was just in line to um, to board a flight. He volunteered to not get on the flight, but let his family go out. And he was kind of like a trend. He was helping us translate. And he was actually from, he had like a business or something like that in, in New York city. And he flew back there to get his family out. Um, but as, as far as the, the Afghan forces. I didn't really experience much, but I would, so that's really the only Afghan I kind of, uh, communicated with. You know, I'm still like half stuck on the fact that there's just no accountability going on for like you. And your parents. Like this Dude, is just, I think about this shit every day. <laughs> like, and, and it kind of, kind of worries me because I still have friends, you know, that, that are still doing the same stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I got friends that are about to go to, go to Poland. So it's like, dude, like, I really hope that the shit has changed or she has improved. Um, kind of one thing I'm worried about is, yeah, like the disinvolvement of the leadership that in that in that whole evacuation. I don't know if it's been cut to an end. I don't know if they, they looked at that and was like, yeah, we need, we need to fucking change this and do better. But yeah, I, well, mean, I mean, that's a, that's a thing, dude. Like, looking at this, nobody – at least as far as I'm aware, has been held accountable like at all for Nobody at all. this operation. I mean, other than uh what's that lieutenant colonel's name? Uh Stuart Scheller, who got he got in trouble for that little social media video he made, but that's it. I mean, nobody that was actually in charge of like coordinating this operation uh yeah, was, held, was held accountable. Yeah, there was like like the one guy I know I watched um another podcast, the um oh it's, it's gonna it's gonna tear my brain apart thinking about his name. The uh, the marine who got his his arm and leg blown off, and he yeah, was like uh, a scout sniper. Hargis. 
Yes. So so the podcast with him, like like they had, you know, they had positive idea of of this suicide bomber, and then he was told by leadership not to shoot because they don't know like, what to do or something like that. It's like it's fucking nuts. Yeah. So so going into that man, uh, August twenty sixth. I mean, from from what I understand, it was pretty much just a normal day until word starts coming in of, hey, we may have like a, a possible suicide bomber or like a VBID going around, like some sort of threat. Mm-hmm. What what was your guys' day like before the attack actually happened? So we we knew about, I say we knew about it. We were told, I'll say on th- three or four different accounts from different people that there was, um, that, that they were expecting a suicide bomber on base, that there was positive ID of all this kind of going on. Um, but we were, we're kind of just told like, like um, stay with each other, stuff like that. There's, there's <laughs> again, no real, no real fucking briefing or anything like that. No, no, no plan, no strategy. And no real details either. Like, Hey, there, no. there might be a threat. Uh, just stick together and, yeah, and go was- from there. That was basically it. Yeah, they said just like like stick together. I say he Sound as in like um the, the kind of the guy that was back and forth between between us and leadership. He kind of drove down. Was like, hey, this is kind of what's going on. Make sure your helmets and gear and everything is on. Uh, stick together. This is the tech sergeant, right? Yeah. What what time of day do you think this was roughly? If you had to guess. This was um, – I would probably say around lunch, lunch there, because it was, I'd say, between 10 and noon. Okay. And at this point, are you still with those Marines, or are you over with the 82nd? So I believe we were at the 80, with the 82nd. Uh, some of us were kind of scattered, so some of us were with the Marines, some were with the 82nd. I – Pretty sure I was with 82nd, still kind of loading up some of their cargo with some other guys. Okay. And, I mean, other than apparently knowing there may be a threat out there somewhere, it's pretty much just like business as usual, right? Just keep doing your job. Yep. Yep, stick to the mission. Okay. And what were you doing when the bomb actually went off? So, So, let's see. I'm trying to think here. Was August 26th the day of the blast? I'm like, I'm that whole thing was pretty foggy for me. So, so the day of the blast, I was was the day that I got to Kuwait. I got to Kuwait that morning. Oh wow! Okay. So, so yeah, yeah. Day of day of the blast, I was sitting there first day back in Kuwait, I believe, and we got word of it from leadership because we still had guys that were there in a um like a CRG unit. Okay. And did you have any any details of what had actually happened or you were just told there was an attack? Um, no details um, other than kind of what was on the main media. I know, so, so leading up to the attack, um, which I do apologize if I got the day confused. I know leading up to the attack, we had, we kept getting briefed like, hey, there's positive, positive idea of a possible suicide bomber, stick together, stuff like that. Um. Yeah. yeah, as far as that goes, it's the day of the attack, I was 
I was back in Kuwait and we kind of were told, um, Hey, check on your guys. We have a few back there. Um, so we're kind of just waiting to hear back to see if everyone's good on that, on that end. Um, I want to say leading on to like later in that day, leading into the next day is kind of when we were told that um, the bombing did happen, that there was an attack on, on Kabul. Uh, so, yeah. So they, they give us a little bit of info, info on it, like going into that next day. As you're leaving Afghanistan, what's, what's going through your mind? So, so the flight out of there, um, it wasn't even supposed to be our flight. I think we had um, we had a scheduled flight the day before, and we got pushed off of it because there was there's too many refugees on it. So we were told to stay for the next one, and then we're told to stay for the next one. And then um, by the time we finally were able to get out of there, we loaded some Black Hawks on this on this plane. Air crew said it was unsafe for us to get on it, but we we got on it anyways after our tech sergeant kind of talk to the pilots and um and the air the air crew. Uh, we got we got on the bird. And so first I guess the first thought in my mind was I don't want this the, the tail of this black hawk to come smack me in the face. Um but I guess that like as we're flying up, you know, you see the flares go out. Um we were kind of told that we may receive incoming fire. And then next thing you know we're like we're just in safe flight headed back to Kuwait. What do you do when you get back to Kuwait? Uh, the first thing is I go back to my my barracks to kind of unload. Well, actually, first thing was to go turn my my rifle into the armory, and then go go um definitely decompress uh in the barracks. Yeah, I kind of got there, took off my kit, and just kind of sat on the bed for a couple hours. Did you know anyone back in Kuwait, or are you kind of by yourself at this point? So there was a team of us that all went back to Kuwait. Um, by the time I got to my my barracks, I was with one other person who, so leaving Bagram, he forwarded to um, Dubai. And so, you know, we all went back to Kuwait after Kabul. Um, they didn't have any dorms there. So I kind of went back to my dorm and he, he came with me. Um, that's where he was going to stay at for the night because I think they're, they were supposed to leave that next day or a couple of days after. Uh, to go back to where wherever they forwarded to, and so I was I was with one of my buddies that night. Yeah, we kind of just kind of sat there. Um, it was definitely like a flash. Like I remember sitting on the bed um, after taking off my kit, and it was almost like I blinked. It was and it was like the next day. I just remember sitting there for a while, just kind of trying to process what was going on. Did you guys talk about it at all? Uh, it was definitely small talk. I know we kind of both definitely. Took, took advantage of just being in a dark room, um, quiet room, right? not, not listening to gunshots, not hearing uh, refugees. Um, I don't know. It was definitely just like a time to decompress. We we, we talked about it, uh, but definitely took advantage of, of the quiet. Yeah, I can imagine that was probably a saving grace, but then – you know, was it also kind of a catch-22? Like, you appreciate the quiet, but then, you know, when the quiet comes around, you have nothing else to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even even now, it's like sometimes I'll sit there and just – it's just one of the things, like, like kind of we can all relate to. Um, 
Yeah, it was it was great having that that moment of of peace, and then then leading into the next day, whenever the um the attack happened, it was like oh shit, it's like like kind of kind of going into thinking like I wasn't even supposed to be on that flight, like I was supposed to be there. Um, it's just I don't know. There's just some huge rabbit hole of thoughts you can just kind of go down, knowing that you weren't even supposed to get out of there yet. Is that something you feel like still kind of sticks with you to this day? Uh, yeah, to a point. Kind of um one of the things that that one of the things that I really um kind of look back on or like like will hit me some days is um like the first few days I was there, I was kind of just, you know, we'd kind of hang out in the in the little hangar that we were provided. Um and then, you know, you, you'd see like Rosario or some, some other guys in there kind of hanging out. And then kind of looking back, it's like, I remember her getting called over to that gate. Um, and then that was just kind of, I don't know, that's kind of the, the last last memory of her. So looking back on that is kind of just, you know, it's one of those like shock feelings. But Just so, just so the listeners know who you're talking about, that's uh, Sergeant Jahani Rosario, who's a member yeah. of a uh, female uh, engagement team. When you're back in Kuwait, did anybody from your unit talk to you about what happened or, or give you a chance to talk about what happened? Or So we had we had one guy who was a reservist out of Georgia who came in while I was gone um, to kind of fill the fill the um, I guess NCO uh, spot. For, for for I guess for the Kuwait group, um, he definitely he definitely took the time. Um, I mean, the first time I met the guy was when I like came back my first day back uh back to the shop after Kabul, and he definitely was like, hey, like I don't know what you I don't know I don't know who you are I don't know where you're from I don't know what you've been through, but um, if you want to talk, we can we can go somewhere and talk. And so, so that was kind of like a weight off my shoulders. Coming back to that, because I guess the place that it was when I left was quite the opposite. So that was definitely yeah, that one guy there um, took the time to let us kind of just vent and talk about what we were feeling. Yeah, that's a very rare and unique opportunity for you to have. That's not, well, I'll, I'll speak for myself, I guess, but I, I don't think that's very common to come back and have you know, an NCO come out and be like, Hey man, like, I don't know what you went through, but you know, I'm here if you need to talk. Yeah, it was definitely great. And I still, I still talk to this guy to the day or to this day, it was just because he, he made, he made a huge impact out there. Like he was one of the few um, NCOs or I, I guess that I've, I've encountered who cared about the people around him. So yeah, definitely good. Looking back on the operation, what do you think was done well? If anything, I'll it say, may be hard to answer. I say, man, I don't even. I, I think my, I'd probably say that I've targeted or pointed out what went wrong so many times. I couldn't even tell you what went well. Um, we got a lot of people out of there. 
but uh, I just thought there, there could have been a, a way better way to to execute that mission. Party, we've touched on it a bit, but what are some other things you think could have been done better? Done better was not closing down Bagram first. Um, or I guess closing down Bagram period. I feel like we should have made that the main hub for for evacuating if if I guess if we knew the evacuation was going to happen in in Kabul um definitely getting them out of that that area because I, I feel like Bagram may have been a better more strategic base to do that out of yeah yeah I think a lot of people have that same opinion I was just talking about it with a friend I mean before we started recording here but Mm-hmm. You know, why would you why would you close down a, a well-established, secure military airfield and instead choose for a civilian international airport? It just it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, 100 percent. I'm pretty sure like the planes that were taken out of that, that were flying out of um, Kabul was like, you know, they'd, they'd go fly to. I want to say Kuwait or somewhere somewhere all these different bases to drop them off, come back, pick up more. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not in a leadership role, but I think maybe, you know, take, taking those guys to Bagram may have just been a, a better option, but what do I know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, having spent some time trying to understand this, this entire fucking play, uh, my understanding is that even the bomber himself, came from Bagram. He was a prisoner at Bagram. And yeah. Essentially yep. three, you know, a couple of days before the bombing took place. Yep. So, you know, if we had stayed in Bagram, which I think is what uh, General Miller originally wanted before yeah. he was transitioned out, Priest General Miller suggested you staying in Bagram. You know, you would have held the prison uh, where, you know, 5,000 Talibs and, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISKP guys were. So the bombing would have never fucking happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, my understanding is that the decision was made because of Ross Wilson, who was the head of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Mm-hmm. And his rationale was that if they closed everything down in the embassy um, and evacuated out of Bagram instead of Kabul, that there wouldn't be a diplomatic presence on the ground to continue diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which um, in, on on that point, man, I mean, uh, what the fuck? You know, everything everything that I've heard is the State Department presence at Hkaya was subpar. To say the yeah. least. Yeah, I um you know, like be- between us, we've interviewed at least do- like dozens of people, and-, and I've only ever interviewed one fucking person ever who said that they saw State Department personnel, and there was like two people, two people they saw there. I- I've never talked with anybody else that was there who said they saw State Department personnel. So yeah. Yeah, and no the idea people, where the, these, you know, 
Yeah, I wouldn't even imagine that they, that they would they would have been there. Um, we definitely had no intel on who was and who wasn't there at the time. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I know even the people that have testified, you know, specifically Tyler Vargas, I mean, both in testimony and on, like, the podcast he's been and stuff like that has been, like, pretty vocal about uh, in the State Department just not, like, doing their fucking jobs. Yep. Dude, I mean, they work, like, they work, like, nine to fives, like, you know, some desk jockey in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. When, I mean, you guys are out there for God knows how long each day, basically dealing with all the bullshit that they won't. Yeah. yeah. Well, dude, I mean, the Washington Post r- reported on this because uh, they, they were essentially just, like, copying um, documents from the actual, like, DOD investigation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I heard this before years ago like when this when the investigation first came out but then just recently i was talking to some guys from the 10th mountain the 82nd and they said the same thing um the 10th mountain when they were evacuating the embassy on it would have been i guess august 15th uh like the day before day of the taliban takeover they said they, they went inside and uh one person was found like in i guess like a closet just drunk um kind of like sitting in the fetal position in the closet and like like the the actual documentation about the event where they interviewed like 10th mountain guys they said that it was pretty much the embassy personnel was pretty much split between they were either walking around as if nothing was going on or they were in like cooper's code black just full like meltdown mode that sounds fucking wild yeah, I mean, they they like they talked about they multiple people talked about like State Department personnel who were just like, like fucking drunk, like freaking out. Um, pe- other people just going like walking around like almost in like a, in a like, delusional state, like oh no, this is everything's fine, like you know it's just another day in Kabul. Uh, you know, and these Tenth Mountain guys are like shaking. I'm like, hey, we need to fucking go. Like <laughs> this is this is over with. Like yeah, yeah. You know, yeah this is over with. It's fucking wild. Yeah, I, I think there's some some major issues with our State Department that we could, I mean, probably spend a whole day talking about. Yeah. Well, you I know? just think, like, you know, people people like Landon, right? People like all these other young men and women, it, it's, it's bad enough to have that moral injury, right? It's bad enough to, to have to essentially be exposed and subjected to the worst possible humanitarian disaster, you know, uh, a combat environment. Like, there's so many things rolled in one. And then to come back, right, deal with that, deal with the fact that it was a, it was a war we lost. And then the last thing to be gaslit by your own government and your own, you know, military and state department officials saying, like, what are you talking about? Like, it wasn't chaotic. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like a mind fuck that we haven't seen. I, mean, I, don't, I don't even think, like, the U.S. You can't even really say that the U.S.'s withdrawal out of Vietnam was that bad because at least, at least everyone acknowledged it was fucked up. Yeah. You know, like this, this they just swept under the rug and they're like it was a fucking success. Yeah, I feel like I feel like they celebrate this as like a big win. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, they do, which is insane. I mean, uh, obviously, I wasn't there and seeing, seeing that fucking scumbag John Kirby stand up on that podium and say from my perch there was no chaos like 
fuck you, dude. I mean, that pisses me off. I can't imagine what somebody who's actually there feels. When that's like that. in um that part of Andrew Vargas's interview where he's talking about when he was in the hospital and um the president walks up to him and leans over like close to his face and is like, "What do you want?" Dude, that fucking made my goddamn blood boil. Like seeing seeing stuff like that is it fucking yeah, it gets it. Yeah, I mean, how how detached from reality do you have to be? I mean, and I almost part of me almost doesn't blame him because he's so old and senile. Like he probably he truly probably had no idea what was going on. But yeah. I, I definitely blame people like General Milley, whose whose sole purpose in life, whose sole job is to advise the president on making intelligent decisions based mm-hmm. on military operations. Who who he did like he at the end of the day like he just failed to do his job right. He failed. Lloyd Austin failed. John Kirby failed. You know, half half the Biden administration failed. And that's what I think is so frustrating is just seeing all these same people, you know, just continuing on. Not a single one of them were fired. Um, yeah, some of them was, failed upward, too. Yeah. Yeah. Promoted. Yep. 100%. 1,000%. And, you know, it's... Um, I think that's kind of why they try to like sweep it under the rug so much. I'm sure, I'm sure next year with it being an election year, we'll hear a lot more about this, but it, it's just very, it's like it was in the news very quickly when it was going down. And then immediately after like literally August 31st, 2021, this just fell off all like Afghanistan just completely disappeared off the fucking the media outlet and we haven't even talked about it like yeah. as a nation right like you you should have these yeah i'm not sure what kind of format you would do it but you, i feel like these are things you talk about as a nation as a, as a people you know like, like like i said even even vietnam right like during that withdrawal everyone literally looked at the withdrawal of vietnam and said that's fucking crazy whereas these guys and gals come back people like you know yourself landon like you come back and, and they they don't even know it's just crazy. They're just like, you know, I would, I'd pay money to see someone like John Kirby look, you know, Sergeant Tyler Vargas in the face and say, yeah, I, t- I didn't see any chaos, buddy. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about, but yeah. Yeah. It's fucking, it's, it's just something that's for sure. It's, um, oh yeah, definitely seeing, seeing the look of it. I guess how people view it. I know, I think another thing was maybe even be off topic. There was, um, I'm not, I think there's too much divide going on right now. I guess um, here that it's. Uh, I know while I was out there, I came back to like. Um, so I think I think when I was in Bagram, I had I had like a little bit of service. No, there's definitely a cobble. Um, I got service in one spot that the British showed me um, to go call home one time. Um, it was like a few days I think after I got there. Um, called home and then I was, I was sitting here getting snapchats from random people like like back home in in the delaware area actually where i was stationed at at the time and uh just people that, that i have met off base that were not you know affiliated with the military and they were just sitting there like i hope you die in afghanistan i hope you do this i hope you do that and it's just like there's so, there's so much going on with the country that people's fucking brains are washed so you're you're receiving these snapchats directly from people you knew in delaware yeah yeah there's a yeah a few people out there that were super against um 
I guess, military operations, super against super what was against going, going out evacuating there. Evacuating women yeah. and children. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, how, how many people would you say sent you those kinds of messages? Um, it, it, it may have at least three or four, like at least a small handful. Um, many of those people that I actually um, hung out with, I would say more than a handful of times as well before leaving. Um, yeah. I mean, God damn. So you got this on your way back home. You weren't even home yet. So I was in, so I was in Kabul and I was at this little like hot spot area that the British um, showed us. And um, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. So I hit this hot spot area to call back home just to kind of like say, hey, mom, I'm all good. Um, during that phone call, some, some like Snapchats and messages, you know, all that stuff would come in t- all at once. And I went ahead and opened a few. Um, and yeah, yeah, I got, I got a few of those Snapchats. So, what was, man, what was that like just being out there and then getting that kind of, that kind of message from people, you know, you hung out with, not just random Americans, but yeah, it's definitely, I don't know. I, I don't know the best way to word it, really. Um, it's just people are this 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 country's going left, I think, in a hard way. Um, it's going down, and I don't know. I feel like people are just getting brainwashed. There's a bunch of things that you you know, growing up, you wouldn't even see it. Growing up, like the military was celebrated, the military was like looked up to, and now so many people are so against it. Yeah. Yeah. Um... You know, freaking, you know, analyze, you know, Mark Mara, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was, I was, I was talking to, you know, Mark and, um, Landon, I think you'll kind of appreciate this. You know, Mark, Mark said one time, he was like, uh, we were talking about Afghanistan and Mark said something along the lines of like, yeah, you know, like progressive white women are like pissing and shitting themselves right now, trying to figure out if they, you know, support the Taliban takeover or they have a problem with it. Um, and, I kind of noticed that a little bit myself when mm. you have all these people who are like, Oh yeah, it's, you know, colonialism and imperialism. And it's, you know, all these, all these buzzwords I learned in college two seconds ago. They were all and, definitely white women that Snapchatted me that. So, <laughs> Oh, most, <laughs> most fucking definitely. Yeah. And, and then two, two minutes later when they realize, you know, the Taliban was a religious fundamentalist group predominantly from, you know, rural Afghanistan, ethnic majority wants to, you know, replace uh, democratic rule with, with, you know, religious fundamentalist rule through means mm-hmm. of violence. When they, when they realize the Taliban is literally everything, they claim to have a problem with the United States. And, it, and they realize it's going to affect, you know, women, it's going to affect, you know, gays, it's going to affect ethnic minorities. Yeah. And they're like, oh, uh, maybe this like wasn't a good idea. That they take yeah. It. It's like, yeah, no fucking shit, you know, Brittany, but you're not going to understand <laughs> that from a sociology class, are you? Yeah, this is fucking nuts. Yeah, it's, some people are <clears throat> so delusional. Like all those people that were shocked when, you know, the Taliban would ban women from going to school or saying, mm-hmm. hey, you can't go outside unless you're wearing full veil. I mean, burka, full veil, can't see any part of your body, and you need a male escort from your family. Yep. It can't be your neighbor. It's got to be like your brother or your dad. And then people are, oh, my God, the, Tal- the Taliban are horrible. They never mm-hmm. change. Like, no fucking shit, they never change. Well, this is how they've always been. 
Yeah. And if you weren't paying attention, that's fine. But keep your mouth shut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was that was something I noticed is everyone kind of started coming in the last quarter, right? The last the or the last inning of the game. They're like, Oh, now I have an opinion on Afghanistan. It's like your opinion doesn't fucking mean anything, dude. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's how I feel about anybody that opens their mouth nowadays. Like you just you gotta take everything with a grain of salt and fucking brush it off. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hard to do, especially when you've lived through something like this, right? Yeah. And and you know, you're talking about these, you know, these fucking white women like telling you they they wish you die in Afghanistan. I mean, that's such a such a crazy emotional response to something that you don't know anything about. And I think that that really speaks to the overall climate in the country. It's like a lot of people talking with a lot of venom and a lot of passion, a lot of emotion about things that they have no experience in things that they have minimal to no knowledge on uh, only because it's like self-righteous kind of virtue signaling. Right. Like, yeah, those, those people felt like they were, those chicks felt like they were taking some sort of spiritual moral stance in this like spiritual war. Right. Like, God, I like, I'm going to tell this fucking colonizer, he's a piece of shit. Hope he dies. Like, they even they don't yeah. understand Afghanistan. They don't understand that you know American service members are trying to set up a fucking democratic government there. They don't they don't understand any of that. Yeah, um, she definitely thought telling me that was going to solve hunger. <laughs> yeah, it just it it just shows how disconnected our our society has been from. I mean, just the realities of the world, you know, and I. I don't mean to uh, pontificate here, but it's like the the day that our country does go to war again, because it will happen at some point, it's not going to be like Afghanistan. And I think a lot of people are in for a rude awakening. Yeah, because yeah I'm mostly not, worried for that day. Most people, when, when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, just forgot that we were at war, right? Because it didn't affect them. Yeah, They're very disconnected, but the next war is not going to be like that. Yeah, I keep hearing all kinds of stuff like this next war is going to be um, what's the word like more so like cyber. Yeah, well, it'll it'll absolutely uh have a cyber element to it, right? Yeah, yeah it's like I keep hearing like yeah, like if this, like it's going to be this country shutting down all of our all of our power. This country shutting down all of our uh, just I don't know everything. I guess <laughs> uh, communication and stuff like that, power, like EMP, uh, things like that. Yeah, that's going to be a wake-up call. Yeah. Yeah, when someone can't fucking check their Snapchat story for two <laughs> seconds, they're going to be really upset. Yeah, well, you know, when those when those same white women who are telling you they wish you were dead, when they, when they can't get their $9 adult milkshake from Starbucks. <laughs> you know, yeah, or weird. when that milkshake costs yeah, $18. Then they're going to be looking the for supply, The supply chain's fucked because we're at war. Yeah. Yeah, they're gonna hit you up, man. They're gonna be like, "Hey, listen, I'm really sorry about how I was." Yeah, I got, I got fucking, I got tea on my doorstep. What do I do? I got tea. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you something, man. Having come back, um, what do you think are some ways, like American citizens, you know, your fellow veterans, what are some things you think we could do to honor the 13 that were killed? 
Uh, it's um, so so for me for the most part. Um, definitely don't overlook what what they were out there doing. Um, I think they were did wrong by leadership by their their own government. The people who they were fighting for did them dirty. Um, and that's just a personal belief. I think something that we can do here for one is to try to put someone in charge who wouldn't let that happen again, uh, put people in charge who can take, take control. Um, I guess in a, in a professional way, um, control situations, you know, have great leadership, have, have leaders, put leaders in charge. Um, so I think we got to start with just coming together for one and, um, realizing the risks that people take going overseas, the risks people take taking the oath in general. Um, appreciate the, appreciate what's done um, for those that go out there and come back. And even more important, importantly, so for the ones that do not get to come back. Um, yeah. Just keep saying their name, keep supporting the movements. Um, yeah. That's pretty much it. Fair enough, man. Was there anything that you feel like we missed? Um, anything, any like memories that stick out to you or anything you, you want to say? Uh, I don't think we really missed anything as far as memories. Man, that whole that whole fucking mission was a, a blur. Um there's times like, like it's hard to say that I don't even remember anything, but there's times where I'll be sitting there like it'll be quiet, or I'll be going to bed, or I'll be fucking making a sandwich someday then something randomly pops up and i forget about it like an hour later fair enough man well appreciate you coming on man i'm not sure if i really have any more questions for you um just hope you're doing okay and you know obviously yep. you've got a friend and uh friend in us if you need someone to talk to and i just appreciate you coming on and taking time to talk with us man yes sir of course i appreciate the opportunity yeah before we let you go i know um you have a apparel company that you wanted to talk about. Uh, yeah, yeah. So wherever, um, one of the very first things I did when I separated was finally took initiative to open up the clothing brand that I've been wanting to uh to do. It is called GWAT Apparel. That is G W O T. Um, so yeah, GWATApparel.com. Um, right now it's pretty, you know, it's pretty slim. Just trying to get get the ball rolling. Um, got a few designs in koozies, bottles, shirts. Got trying to get some athletic apparel and stuff like that coming through. Um, but yeah, yeah, I actually make them here in house. They're made in America. Good stuff, man. Well, everyone, everyone heard that. That's uh, at G Watt Apparel. So please go check out Landon's uh, apparel. Give him, give him some fucking follows. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you guys, you guys are on social media, right? Yeah, Facebook, Instagram. Um, yeah, we're trying to incorporate some. I'm, I'm I'm on the on the path to get my NASLM and some other certifications that way I can start professionally um, doing personal training, and I want to start. I want to open up a group that kind of caters to to veterans who think that they're kind of out of the fitness game or out of being healthy because of a uh, due to disabilities. Kind of one of the challenges that I took was my doctor in the Air Force told me not to bend, not to squat, not to lift anything over like 20, 30 pounds. Um, 
after a few months of doing that, I felt the worst I've ever felt in my life. So I took, I took to get myself back in the gym and realized how my quality of life, I mean, fucking was times a thousand. So I kind of want to take, take a reach, take an approach to other vets who may be in the same circumstance to try to try to beat their challenge and not get back in the fitness. Cause I think especially if they're dealing with mental health issues, one, one of the biggest things to cure mental health issues is physical health. Go to the gym. So that's kind of what I want to incorporate with this uh, clothing brand. That's badass, man. It's a powerful mission. Appreciate it. Yeah. Good shit, dude. Um, thank you again for being here. Um, that's might not have been an easy conversation for you to have, but appreciate I, I you telling your, telling your story. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Uh, to be honest, <laughs> sorry, I went on kind of a rant there for a minute. I always end up doing this shit. Always... <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> we always do this every time. That shit keeps it interesting, though. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, man. Thank you again, and thank you for your service, too. Yep, of course. Thank you all. You have a blessed day. Appreciate you, brother. See ya. Okay, we hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Of course, I want to thank Landon for coming on and telling his story about what happened at Bagram and, and HK. I think it's an important story to tell. Um, so hopefully history doesn't repeat itself further down the line, right? Thank you guys for supporting this podcast. You guys have really helped us grow within this past year or so. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That's all one word. We're also on Telegram at Analyze Educate. Uh, also, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Analyze Educate, uh, or at ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash Analyze Educate. If you support us on Patreon, you have the opportunity to listen to this episode a little bit earlier, maybe about a week or so earlier than everybody else. So if that's one of you guys, thank you for your support. Um, and if you're listening to this when it releases for everybody, consider joining. We got some perks. You guys can take a look on the website, early episodes, Q&As, uh, podcast, subject, suggestions, so all that good stuff. So again, please consider supporting us because that support does go a long way and we really appreciate it. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever app you use to listen to this podcast. That helps us out as well. That's all I have for you guys right now. We'll see you soon.